dust and breath me on Welcome to This Good Word, where every week we look at one single word in an endless discovery of reclaiming what's holy about our humanity. My name is Steve Weens. I'm a pastor, I'm a writer, and I'm a father of three crazy boys. My hope with this podcast is to create an environment where you can continually discover who you actually are in the world. So feel free to check out my website at steveweens.com, S-T-E-V-E-W-I-E-N-S.com, where you can find links to my blog, to purchase my book, which is called Beginnings, The First Seven Days of the Rest of Your Life, and also links to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Enjoy the podcast, everybody. Hey everybody, episode 34 this week with Lynn Hybels. Uh, I was so inspired after talking to Lynn. I was encouraged, I was challenged, I was motivated. I laughed so many times and there were some things that she said in this conversation that I will be thinking about for months to come. Things for me, things for the church, uh, things for peacemakers all over the world. So enjoy uh, this conversation with Lynn Hybels. Okay, everybody, welcome to This Good Word. I am so excited to be here with Lynn Hybels. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Steve. <laughs> uh, Lynn has been one of my heroes for a few years now. I've known of her for many years, um, but we kind of made friends maybe three years ago in something I'll talk about later, and hopefully Lynn will talk about it later as well. But since 2009, Lynn has been actively trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus into places of conflict. In the Democrat in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the deadliest conflict since World War II still rages, she has partnered with local churches. They're caring for women who have been brutally raped and are initiating grassroots peacemaking efforts in their villages. In Israel-Palestine, she hosts groups of American Christians who want to learn from Jews, Muslims, and Christians, Israelis, and Palestinians who are working for dignity, security, and freedom for all people in the Holy Land. Lynn also raises awareness and funds to empower followers of Jesus in the Middle East who are serving Syrian refugees and displaced Iraqis. She and her husband Bill have two grown children, Shauna. Some of you guys know Shauna. That's Shauna Nequist, the author and Todd, and one son-in-law, Aaron Nequist, and two grandsons, Henry and Mac, who run the family. (laughs) Oh, I've seen some pictures of those two rascals on Instagram. I don't know if it's yours or or Shauna's, but they look darling. They are lively. Lively. Okay, uh, well, hi, Lynn. Again, I'm so excited to have you on, and I just want to ask you a bunch of questions, and you just just riff and go, and we are going to just love, love hearing from you. So uh, first question, you're a writer, you're a reader, and you are an introvert like myself, my friend. Introverts unite. 
Uh, you're also a fierce advocate for peace and reconciliation in the Middle East, as well as for refugees and women who have experienced violence due to war. Uh, what were some key events, I'm just interested in conversations that broke your heart for justice? You know, some people, you know, point to, oh, in their 30s or 40s or 50s, they had some major, you know, conversion related to justice issues. But when I was seven years old, if you would ask me what I want to do when I grow up, I'd say, well, I want to help the poor. Wow. wow. Not, not a very um, uh, politically correct way to say that, but that was what my heart was. And I actually went to college to be a social worker. And then instead of going into that field, uh, I married this man who wanted to start a church. <laughs> but I, I really thought that was fine. I had a very holistic view of the church, even though I didn't grow up in a church like that. I, I believed that the church should deal with all the issue, issues in a person's life and in their community. And so I really saw that as a great place to be a social worker, you know. Um, unfortunately, it was a lot harder to start a church and start a family and, and all of that than, than we anticipated. And, and so you all were like 22, 23, right? When you started the small little church called Willow Creek? Yes, we were, uh, 23. Yeah, we were 22 when we got married, 23 when we started Willow, 24 when our first child was born. So it was kind of a... A busy time. Yeah. So I didn't really have a lot of time to do the social work kinds of things. Um, and actually, I did, you know, get very sidetracked for a number of years with just the other kinds of things that come up in a Absolutely. life. You know, um, I got really involved in administration and hospitality and just running a home and family and just a lot of the details of life that Bill really didn't have time to do. And so um, for a long time, I thought, well, that passion that I used to have, I, I guess that isn't for now, you know. Mm -hmm. But I remember, I clearly remember um, at one point uh, going on a, a mission trip with a group from Willow when I was down in, a, in Mexico at an orphanage. Mm -hmm. and I was handing out little uh, plates of canned peaches to little orphan kids. And I thought, this is where I feel alive. Wow. And I have to figure out how to do more of this, you know? And so it took kind of a long time for me to get disconnected from the other responsibilities that I had just slowly taken on that were really not <laughs> right for me. And get more involved in uh, justice issues and global issues. And so that was kind of a, a again, it was in me from the beginning. Yes. It took a while to actually be able to get back to that. And so um, in, the, in the 90s, I got quite involved in Latin America, uh, first in the inner city of Chicago, and then we got involved in Latin America. And then in the early 2000s, got involved in Africa, AIDS in Africa. And I was kind of, I got grabbed by that issue and sort of gave the push to Willow getting involved in that um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And so for a number of years, I was really busy doing that. I, I've never been on staff. I've always been a volunteer, but I've put a lot of 
time in. <laughs> yes, in so many ways, I'm sure, in so many ways. At, at different points. And then um, finally we had staff at Willow that could really take that on. And I was, um, I didn't have to put so much time in there. So I thought, okay, I'm really going to sort of back off the global thing. And right at that point, um, long story, but I got involved in the Middle East. So going from Africa to the Middle East was not exactly um, simplifying life. (laughs) It it was interesting, but one of the things that always was hard for me, I Mm. think, growing up with a kind of sensitivity that I had is that I was always very aware of the pain in the world. Yes. Um, and even as a Christian, I mean, I, I did not have a good answer to the problem of pain and, and why, why is the world like this? And I'd read the books and I'd try to, to try to figure it out. And I never found a good answer. And finally, at a certain point, I just realized that for me, there was no answer. Yeah. There was only response. Mm. In fact, there were two responses. One, um, when we see the pain in the world, or, or when I saw it, um, I could either shut my heart, I'll pretend I didn't see that, pretend I didn't go there, pretend I don't know that, and close myself off, but then I would become a little less human. Mm. Or open myself up to it and feel it, but then the only only response then was to do something about it. So to me, I found that the antidote to despair is action. If I just look at the pain of the world, of the injustice, of the war, and all of that, it's just overwhelming, and it's so sad, and I can easily go into despair. Yeah. So that, for me... Um, Getting involved, uh, responding to these issues has just kind of been a way to um, stay sane, really in life, a way to make sense out of out of the reality of the world. So that's been um, that. Can, I've never found a better answer. I've never found a better answer to the pain of the world than just to get involved. Yeah. To whatever extent I, extent well, I can. Lynn, it seems like, too, someone with your temperament, and I've met people like this, too, where they would describe themselves as having sort of a thin membrane between them and the people that they're interacting with, and that could be people who are suffering or anyone. Would you describe yourself that way, like, oh, my goodness, like you see pain and feel pain quite deeply? Yes, I, I've sometimes thought to myself, I, I wear the nerve endings on the outside <laughs> of my body. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's poignant to me that you would say there's really only two responses one is pretend that i didn't see it and and, or get involved and that um if i pretend i become less human wow so there's a little book i read a long time ago um well not that long ago but john vanier he wrote a book called becoming human have you read that little book no, I oh my goodness! It's <laughs> so thought. it's just you would love it. So Jean Vanier, you know, he started the large communities, right. and it's just this tiny little tiny little book. Anyway, listeners, we'll put that on the show notes. Uh, Jean Vanier, becoming human. Um, thank you, Lynn. Wow, um, well, so, so rich. Second, the second thing response that I I have to pair with that 
um, the antidote to despair is action. But then the the prayer that I pray most most often then is God, what is mine to do? Yes. Yes. Because being so sensitive to what's going on in the world and knowing that that I do want to act, but there's so much out there. How do I know what is mine to do? And so at times I've really had to sense God saying, you know, I know you really care about that, but that is not yours to do. I, I have someone else to take that on. Other times I've, I've needed to sense God saying, you know, that is yours to do. And I know it terrifies you or it's not what you're expecting, but that is yours to do. And so that has been, that is, that continues to be my most oft prayed prayer. Absolutely. That is so, I think, so wise. And how have, what, um, what has been your process of discerning? what is yours and what isn't yours? Because, you know, so there's the prayer, there's maybe the daily minute by minute prayer. What are some other ways that you've started to identify what is yours and what isn't yours? Well, I, I mean, just, there are the kinds of things you learn about as you go along in life. Like, I know that I sort of like to dig deep into difficult issues. Yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of like to go deep into certain areas rather than spread myself all over the world or into yeah. Yeah. different issues. Um, so I, I have learned to pay attention to that. Mm. Um, I've also, and this I certainly did not expect, but have learned that I'm drawn to conflict zones which is really strange because I can't even watch war movies yeah. or books. I mean, um, and yet as I look back over um, very uh, a number of significant uh, global experiences that I've had going way back to the early 90s, I was in con- conflict zones. And I realize now that... Um, <laughs> I think why I am drawn to war songs is that I realize that war destroys everything. Yeah. From the tiniest baby to the infrastructure of a whole society. Um, everything is destroyed if there's war. And so in the last 20 years, a lot of American churches have gotten really involved um, with mercy issues and justice issues and are doing a lot of wonderful things all around the world from building wells and schools and just doing a lot of great things. But all of those things are undone if there's war. Yeah. And so I've sort of concluded that um, peacemaking is the cutting edge of the American church for the 21st century. It has to be. Because if we care about any of the other global issues, we need to care about peacemaking because all those other issues are going to be, um, all the good things are going to be undone and all the bad things are going to be exacerbated. I mean, if you want to talk about human trafficking, well, that's going to be, that's going to increase in a war zone poverty, it's going to increase in a war zone. So um, I have gradually found myself drawn to war zones because I think they're kind of fundamental to everything else that we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. 
one of the concepts that I've been thinking, Lynn, a lot about is shalom. You know, this idea of wholeness, this idea of completeness, the absence or the putting back together that which has been shattered. And the, 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 the opposite word to shalom in the Hebrew is ra'ah, which literally means to shatter, to break apart. And so it, it occurs to me that the, what you're doing in the world in these war zones is, you know, fashioning this mosaic of, of brokenness into wholeness again. Um, one relationship at a time. And, and so as I've read on your blog and, and elsewhere, some of the people that you've met in some of these places, some of these women, it's just so hopeful and so heartbreaking, actually, as I read it. And it's it's hard, actually. <laughs> it's hard to, I mean, it's good. I, I thank you so much for being eyes for us. Um, it's hard. Anyway, um, but it, yeah, I mean, I, I find myself in that same spot, Lynn, of do I do I shut my eyes? Do I go back to my normal life? Or do I engage in whatever ways that I can? So you are encouraging all of us to do the same thing as you're doing it. So thank you. Um, okay, so another question I really wanted to ask you is three years ago, you started this movement called Maybe I Can 2013. And you kayaked across about 40 miles of Lake Michigan. It was really, really choppy during the actual cro- the, the actual crossing that you did. I remember seeing pictures. I think your husband, Bill, was in a boat next to you. It was dark. I mean, it was getting crazy. Um, and that movement changed my life, actually. And so you and how it started for me was I read a tweet. or No, I read a blog. And then I retweeted it. Oh, Lynn Heibel's doing this cool thing. And then you tweeted back to me, like, what are you going to do? You know, and for a moment there, I was taken aback. Like, what? Yeah, I just thought it was cool. Uh, but then it, it, it led to this whole, this huge thing that I wrote about in my book and, and that uh, led to running the Grand Canyon and all this uh, really things that, that changed my life or maybe connected some dots in my life that were already there and put myself on a trajectory that um, is more about shalom. Anyway, describe what you did back then. That was three years ago, almost three years ago, and why you did it. Okay, yeah, that was um, 2013. Yes, I kayaked, Steve, but you actually turned it into a movement. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) oh, it was so fun. That was so fun. Anyway, it was fun, actually, but um, I couldn't have done what you did, however. Well, you can tell that story later. in 2009, I was driving my car to Michigan to visit my parents, and there was a radio program, NPR program, on about the Congo. And it was saying that the um, deadliest conflict since World War II was going on in the Congo. Nearly six million people had been killed, that there were you know hundreds of thousands of people who had been um, displaced from their homes, and that rape was used as a weapon of war in the Congo more than at any other point in history and any other point in the world. That, And when you're using the word rape in relationship to Congo, it's like the most brutal, violent um, violation of a woman you can imagine. It, it is in a category all its own. And so I listened to this program and I thought, this can't be true. I mean, I'm not totally unaware of what's going on in the world and I've never heard of this. This can't be true. But I started doing some research and found out it was true. And so then I found out, um, just started doing research about who was doing what uh, to re- address this in the Congo. So I ended up 
uh, taking a trip over there with an organization. And then uh, that was in two, uh, 2009, I took the trip. Well, then in uh, 2009 and then in 2012, again, I went to the Congo. And after that second time, I was just really, you know, talking about the Congo all the time, telling my yeah, family yeah. about it and everything. And finally, my husband said, okay, well, if you will kayak from South Haven, Michigan to Saugatuck, Michigan and back, I will give you $10,000 for your favorite charity, which I know will be Congo. And this is the be- beginning of the summer. I said, well, no, I, I can't do that. I haven't kayaked for years. There's absolutely no way I can do that. <laughs> I love this. But I just started thinking, well, maybe I can. Yeah. You know? And I I just kept thinking about the women that I had met. And I I knew enough about some of the really great interventions that were going on on the ground for these women. I knew what a difference $10,000 could make. And so I thought, well, I think I have to try, you know. Yeah. So I started I started training uh, kayaking a lot uh, up and down the Lake Michigan coast uh, during uh, July and August. And then at the end of August, um, we scheduled the day when I would do this. And I actually found one other woman that would do it with me. And it just so happened that she was 38 years younger than I was. <laughs> she didn't train nearly as much as I did, but you know, she was going to do it with me. So um, there was just one week when I could really do it, when it fit, when Bill was still going to be there and, and all this. And he and my son wanted to be in the chase boat watching out for me. And so there was just a few days that in this window of time and the first day came and it didn't look like a very good day weather wise, but it was better than the ones coming up. Oof. So we thought, okay, I've got to try it. So um, we left the South Haven channel on the kayak at about 6.45 in the morning. It was dark. And I thought it would take maybe four hours to kayak up to South, to Saugaduck and then four hours back. And I just did not anticipate um, the way the waves would build and how severe the weather would be. So it really, um, the round trip, uh, I mean, I started at 6.30 in the morning and I didn't finish until 9.30 at night. And actually, I was still a couple of miles short of the goal, but it was just too dark, and Bill made me stop. Oh. <laughs> too dangerous out here. So I did go out and finish the couple of mi- miles the next day. But um, what was significant uh, for me with that? I mean, obviously, getting the money. I mean, that, that's what motivated me to do it. I wanted to, to do the money, to get the money for these women. But what happened during the course of the day, as I was just paddling and paddling, I started thinking, is there anything else going on here? I mean, yes, I'm, I'm getting this money, but, but is there anything else happening here? And I realized that there was something really profound happening in me hmm. as I was paddling that it had become kind of um, an active identification with the women. And when the paddling got hard, I'd find myself saying, well, I can't stop. 
because those women can't stop. I mean, they have to show up every day and face what's hard in life. And so I just found myself like being energized by thinking of them. And then I would think of the people that I knew, the, the different women, I could see their faces and I'd hear their names and I would think, I wonder what's happening with them. And so then I'd, I'd start praying for them. So the whole kayaking experience ended up being very profound in me, regardless of the money. And then I thought, well, does it really matter, though, to do something as an act of solidarity a half a world away from somebody? I mean, so... You know, it, it's it's making a difference in me, but but what does it matter? But by the time I got to the end, I realized maybe the only thing I really had the power to change was myself. Yeah. But the change that it made in me was very profound, and it really fueled uh, a passion for the Congo that has never left, and for those women that has never left. And I, I think that there is, I think there's something really important about acts of solidarity. Obviously, I think it's very important to, to raise money and to raise awareness. But sometimes just putting ourselves out there, doing something really hard as an act of solidarity for, for what other people are going through, it ends up having a profound impact. Uh, internally. And so it has definitely fueled my engagement in the Congo since then and my engagement elsewhere. Well, definitely. Uh, And, you know, there's a sense in which you could say, okay, I'm a grandma. I've done a lot in my life. I kayaked 40 miles, you know, across Lake Michigan. Uh, I'm going to take a couple years off, (laughs) you know, but you didn't. In fact, so you recently climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, Lynn, um, unbelievable. And I, I found out about this, I think, via your blog. Maybe it was through Belinda Bauman's um, writing. or I, I don't know how I found out about it, but, but I think it was you. Anyway, um, this is not something that's on the agenda of most people, <laughs> climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, I, that was not on my bucket list. Right. Well, oh. and I get the sense that, that that's sort of the life that is the adventure is not necessarily making the bucket list, but it's sort of praying this prayer. What is mine to do and going uh, day by day and season by season? Because there's, there's something about the bucket list that actually bugs me because the bucket list becomes the goal. You know, like I'm going to come to kill these things versus being prayerful and thoughtful about what is it that I can actually engage in in the world. Anyway, uh, so you climbed with a team of women from One Million Thumbprints, um, and I podcasted about this a few weeks ago. I, I hope I think some people gave. I was so people were following it because I was Instagramming it. You know, you would send you 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 send a picture at, at, at like the day before the summit, and I retweeted it. People are getting excited about it. I was getting excited about it. Anyway, Lynn, describe the mission of One Million Thumbprints, how it came into existence, and then I want to ask you more specifically about the climb. But first, One Million Thumbprints, because I think this story of how this started just gripped my heart. Yeah. Well, um, in 2012, on my second trip to the Congo, uh, I took a friend of mine, Belinda Bauman, with me. Yep. And and a group of other women. There were about seven of us we went. I, I had seen what was going on there. I just wanted to bring some other women in on that to know that. And so while we were there, we met with – we spent a whole day – with 11 women 
telling their stories. They had all been raped brutally, um, ended up in the hospital for months, some of them. Uh, some of them watched their husbands murdered, um, their their children raped. I mean, these women had suffered so much, and yet they were um, part of this little uh, counseling community that was really helping them heal. And so we were able to to hear their stories of of horror, but also begin to see the healing that was going on with them. And... And we realized how important it was for them to tell their stories. And in fact, by the end of the day, they said to us, we want you to tell our stories. We want the world to know what's going on in the Congo. This this has to be told. And so we said, well, in order to, you know, we'll be happy to tell your stories, but you need to sign your name. We, we want to make sure that we're doing this with your permission. Well, one of the women, her name was Esperanza. She could not read or write. So she signed her name with her thumbprint and said, tell my story. And then she gave us her thumbprint. And this thumbprint really um, grabbed Belinda's mind, especially. And over the next few years, it just kept building in her mind. And we would talk about it and um, we'd say, you know, we, you know, I started this organization called 10 for Congo in 2009, and that's why these 10 women went to Congo. I mean, it's basically, everybody can give $10 for Congo. Yeah, but then, yeah. as Lynn and I were talking, we we're like, no, it should be a million dollars for Congo. And then we had these thumbprints. Oh, it should be a million thumbprints. And so 10 mil- a million, one million thumbprints kind of grew out of that as a way of raising funds and awareness yeah. about yeah. what's happening, not only to women in the Congo, but in other war tone war zones, in particular the Congo and South Sudan and in Syria and Iraq. And the gender-based violence that goes on in war zones is so inconceivable. And so we just thought we have to tell these stories. And so Belinda came up with this idea of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro as a way and summiting on um, International Women's Day as a way of beginning to raise funds and awareness. And uh, I thought this is a great idea that she came up with. And I really cheered her on with it. And I had no intention of doing it because um, I was much older than all of the others doing this. And I just... um, I, I was dealing with uh, illness, my parents' illness, and a lot of things, and I just thought it it was not uh, possible for me to do it, but I was just really cheering them on. And then at the end of 2015, just in December, certain things kind of shifted in my life, and I realized, oh, I I really could do this. Mm-hmm. But um, and so it was kind of impulsive. I'm like, okay, yes, Belinda, I'll do it. And then I had to, you know, get into some... Uh, quick training and try to get ready for it because I was definitely not prepared for that. But, wow. Uh, Yen, uh, we were emailing back and forth and at one point you had an injury. I mean, you had uh, two injuries, didn't you? Like an Achilles thing or, or was it a shoulder I, thing or what, what was that, Lynn? Well, I tore my uh, rotator cuff. Right, right. And I had been swimming. That was one of my main training ways of training. And I fell on the ice, actually, and tore my rotator cuff. So 
that swimming wasn't working. And then I, I injured my foot and um, had to stay off my foot for a couple of weeks, right? Various time opinions. So I thought, well, this is not going to work. I can't do this. You know, things are just not looking good for this. But um, at a certain point, you just have to go with it, you know? Yes. You just have to keep going. And, 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 and so at a certain point, and this was in, in January, I mean, so this was pretty late in the game. I just said, okay, by this weekend, I'm either going to say yes or no. Um, and I said yes and, and you know, got busy doing it. And uh, on the climb, I, I did have trouble with my shoulder. I know we had talked about that a little bit. Um, I managed – I could carry my backpack as long as somebody would put it on for me. So I, I had to get a little help along the way. But um, the injuries worked out. Everything was fine. Wow. Okay. So that's amazing. I mean, so as a side note, Lynn wrote a book called Nice Girls Don't Change the World. Um, anyway, and I, I love that title. I love that title. And you're just, you're walking it out. You're proving it with a torn rotator cuff and foot injury. I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro because I can. And, and I don't know if I can, but maybe I can. So you get it. So I don't know if I could, but. <laughs> but that's awesome. I remember getting that email and you're like, well, my latest adventure is I'm considering doing climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm like, yes. Oh, I love that so much. That's so, oh, it's just so good. You're anyway, Lynn. Great later, Steve. Well, you're, uh, you're so, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. How was the climb? Describe, describe to me how the climb was, uh, how, you know, some lows, some highs, get us into sort of how that was for you and the team. Okay. I think, um, one of the lows, uh, of, of the trip was when we all met at the airport in Amsterdam, there were 14 women, uh, climbing and I didn't, I know, Belinda, I knew Belinda and one others. I didn't know any of the others and, and, and we all knew Belinda, but we didn't really know each other. So we met at the airport in Amsterdam. It was just like Amsterdam was like really awkward. Yes. Who are these people? Why did I sign up to do this with people? I don't even know this is going to be so intense. And it was just kind of that awkward awkwardness there. And, And I bring this up because by the end of the trip, we would have done anything to pull each other up to that summit. I mean, we were so in that together. And and it was such a really, really wonderful group of women and a, a beautifully bonding experience. And, uh, but to think of the, you know, the moment of our first meeting and what it was like at the end, that was really beautiful <laughs> um, part of the experience. Um, I think we all say that it was, the hardest thing we've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially that actual summit uh, day. You know, where you're you're hiking for about uh, four days, going from going up to about fifteen thousand. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's just so so thin. The air is so thin up there. And so you're you're um, we we took a long a longer route, you know, um, so that we wanted to you know take the altitude as slowly as we could to acclimatize to that but by the so you're going through several different um ecosystems you know uh um a rainforest and you know then 
um, alpine, low alpine and high alpine. And, and pretty soon toward the end, it's like we are climbing to Mordor. I mean, <laughs> nothing there, but, you know, so we went through so much beauty. And for me, that was one of the one of the high points of the experience, just the beauty of going through all the, this, these different ecosystems and all the different foliage. And, and it was just beautiful. Um, uh, I'm a nature freak. So yes. I, I was really um, inspired by that. That was wonderful. Um, uh, the hardest thing, one of the hardest things was that every night it was freezing. Yeah. And yeah. so we would sleep in tents and we had really heavy duty um, sleeping bags, but it was so cold that We'd have, you know, two pairs of long underwear on, a fleece, a down jacket, two pairs of socks, hand warmers in our socks, and you're still freezing. And because you had to keep drinking and hydrating all the time. Oh, right you're peeing all night. Yeah, right about the time you get <laughs> you have to get up and go outside. And, you know, oh. Miserable. So I, I would say that none of us got much sleep uh, on, the, on the whole trip. Um and there were certain days when the hiking was easier, some when it was, was harder, and we were all just, we're all new at it. And so every day was a learning experience. And one of the first things that we learned is the word poli, poli, poli. That's what, Swahili for slow. So yeah, yeah. Everything is done very slowly um, because they want us to get used to the altitude. And so there were times when you thought, this is ridiculous. Why don't they let us speed up? Come on. Do they know what they're doing? And then pretty soon we listened, oh, my gosh, we can barely crawl up this mountain. They were so smart. You know, these yeah. guys do that. So um, the hardest thing of all was the actual summit day. Um, you, We arrive at the base the summit base camp, which is at about 15,000 feet. And we get there in the afternoon and then we're supposed to sleep in the evening because we have to leave at midnight to begin the actual summit because you have to go up uh, while it's still dark so that by the time you get up and then come down again, you can get down again before it's dark again. And you can't stay up there very long because of the um, altitude. So you leave at midnight, you have not slept. You're supposed to sleep for a few hours before then, but of course nobody sleeps. We're, we're all so nervous and excited. I mean, this is it. We have on these heavy down jackets. We, we are geared up for the summit. And so we take off, it's dark. We're going in a single file, just um, basically up a moonscape, <laughs> just dirt and stones but we can't see it anyway all all we can see is is a pair of boots in front of us and we have these little headlamps on and so this goes on for hours and hours that we're just walking and it's really steep we're just going back and forth you know switchbacks and it's kind of like we're in a prison you know yeah uh what do you call those like a well, a chain gang, kind of, right? I mean, that's what you're saying? Oh, my god! Like a chain gang, except it's dark, and all, all we can see of the booths in front of us. And so it was really quite unpleasant. And 
really, really hard. And I think that's when it, it started to hit all of us that uh, clearly the easy part is past. And now this is just kind of gutting it out. And and it really was hard. And it took us, I don't know, eight hours, you know, to, to get to the summit. And very slowly and just really hard. And then you get to the top. You're like, this is amazing. We made it. We're up here. We have our little celebration. And then... You have to go down. Yeah, before it gets dark. So it's like you're hustling, getting hustled along. Hard going. And things that didn't hurt on the way up, your knees, your feet, everything hurts on the way down. And it's and it's much harder. And so then you get finally you get down to that base camp that you left at midnight. You get there in the afternoon and they say, "Okay, well, this, this is great, but we still have another five hours. You have to get to a lower elevation for the night. So that's a really, really um, hard day. The actual summit was really hard. But um, for me, the best part of the whole experience, this I think this is why I did it. Um, people did it for different. I mean, we all did it to raise awareness and to raise funds. Uh, but for some people, there were, there were just different levels of... Um, intensity of of this is something I have to do uh, for myself to for my confidence or something I think after the kayak thing I didn't feel that way so much but here's what I think I had to do when we got to the very end we come down it's it's the very end we're going to say goodbye to this um this group of porters who actually helped us do this I mean there were 15 people climbing and like 60 porters. Wow. They were carrying all the the tents, the sleeping bags, the food. Um, Every night we had to set up a different, a camp in a different place and they were carrying all that stuff. So it was all these, these African men and women, because it was a a group of women um, hiking, we asked for women porters and as many as they could, as, as they had. And so we found out later that actually the company actually hired more women porters for this group. So, you know, we're very excited that there were some women who got jobs out of this. Wow. Um, at the end, we got to the end and, and, and these porters are all standing around and we've gotten to know them. I mean, they, they help with everything. They're not only carrying our stuff and setting up our tents and guiding us up and, and down the mountain, but they, they come and talk to us and they'll say, how you doing? And every time they ask you a question, you know, they're looking at our eyes. There's mm-hmm. ma- they're making sure they want to see if we're really okay. And so they are monitoring us all the time. They are very kind, very gracious, very helpful. And then you get to the end. And what hit me at the end was, yes, we, those of us who climb, 14 climbers, we worked very hard and we wouldn't have made it if we hadn't have worked very hard, but we also wouldn't have made it without them. Yeah. That company was called the African walking, um, African walking company. We could not have done it at all without them. We would have still been down at the gate yeah. without them. And so what was so meaningful about that for me was that um, my role, uh, one of my ministry roles, 
is to talk to church leaders um, about the refugee situation and about women in war zones and all these different global issues, but particularly about the refu- refugee situation now and, and women. And I realized that, to me, I saw this great metaphor that all of these women that I've met in various places in the world, I, I can tell their stories. I can tell stories of a woman who has a baby in, in each arm and is crossing a border at night, um, fleeing from a war zone looking for a refugee camp. I can tell the story of that woman. I can tell the mountain that she's climbing, yeah. the mountain of safety, you know? Or I can tell the story about the woman in the Congo who has been so brutally um, beaten physically that she is is trying to heal the the mountain she's climbing is is the mountain of healing um i can tell all kinds of stories about refugees and women and how they're suffering and the kind of mountains that they're climbing but the story that i needed was the story of the african walking company Mm. i needed the story of the people who helped us make that climb, just like, in my opinion, the American church has to help these people all over the world climb the mountains they're trying to climb. I mean, it was just the most gripping image to me. Yes. That the American church, we have to be the ones who come beside these people all over the world who are climbing these horrific mountains that they don't choose. We chose to do Kilimanjaro, but these people suffering, they're not choosing these mountains, but they have to get up each day and climb. And we, the American church, we need to be the guides, the porters, the African walking company that comes alongside them. And that is why, I think that's why I went on this climb. Yes what I had to see. And that's the story that I want to be able to tell and, and the challenge that I want to give to the American church uh, to come alongside brothers and sisters who are suffering. Lynn, I think that is such a prophetic and courageous and beautiful call. I mean, I've been a pastor for 21 years now. Um, and I think there's a sense of that the church is struggling with its identity right now. What will we be about in the world? What will... I think there is a sense that some things are dying and some things are being born. And so into that reality, I think to hear a voice like yours to say, we can and should be the ones that come alongside is so important. And so <clears throat> um, at the, well, maybe I'll just do it right now. I mean, really you helped us, you helped our little church, our little church plant, two, not even two years old, called Genesis, get in touch with this uh this church in Jordan. Yes. We're not going to name the church because it wouldn't be safe, but there's a beautiful couple that's leading this church right on the ground in Jordan, and they're doing some amazing work with refugees, right? And so when we were emailing, I don't know how the, I don't know how this stuff comes about, Lynn. I just, it's like, I have an idea. And Lynn, do you have an idea? I think that was what it was like. I was like, how do we, because I was getting some, I was getting some questions from our church. What are we going to do about refugees? And so I emailed you and said, do you have any thoughts? And that's when you said there is this great little church in Jordan. And so 
we did a very small thing, but it was it was collect our Christmas Eve offering. I think over the course of a month or so, we got about three thousand dollars. And and then I released this book and and the the book party we sold a bunch of books and so I gave like ten percent to to the little church and it was just such a, I mean it feels like a very small thing and in it it is a pretty small thing but it's a way to do something right that hopefully will lead to more things, right. um but so there is a I think there's a lot of pastors out there Lynn that are like okay there's a lot going on I'm busy man, the refugee crisis feels overwhelming. What can I do? And maybe they're getting some pressure from their board or whatever. Hey, don't get involved in that. That's political. <laughs> Even though what? But I mean, I don't. So what would you say to pastors that, like me, that are just doing the deal day in and day out, preaching sermons about how we can really come alongside, what steps we can take? Well, you know, with the refugee situation, especially in the Middle East, I mean, this is the... This is the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world right now. And, I mean, I was just in Iraq twice last year and in Jordan. I, I've been on, there on the ground and I've seen, I've seen the, the impact of the evil and the hatred and the violence that's going on over there. And just the more I've seen, the more I've become convinced that the only power that can stand against that is the power of God's love lived, lived out from, you know, by God's people. And so I think, um, I think the worse it gets over there, the more the church has to engage. And fortunately there are great people on the ground engaging. There are Christians in all these company uh, countries that are doing great work, churches that are doing great work. Um, one benefit I've had uh, just because of knowing a lot of people in the Middle East and traveling about, about four years ago um, after the Syrian uh, refugee crisis started started i just contacted a lot of people i knew and got information and then began researching organizations on the ground and so i was able to vet um organizations that we at willow creek and others could um partner with and also some churches like the church that i told you about in in jordan which is a really extraordinary church and and they don't have they don't have a big fundraising arm in the US and because of security uh, issues they they can't put this on a website but they are there and so um yes there have been a few people like you Steve who have um joined and partnered with Bill and I in just trying yeah. to raise some funds for them um but you know Bill just spoke at a gathering of of pastors um a few weeks ago and he had just come back from Jordan um at, at that church and going also to a refugee camp there and so he just said to all these pastors look i know you don't have time to get involved in a lot of research and everything but they're like world vision and world relief two very highly respected organizations are very involved in the middle east some of us know other smaller organizations if people want to get you know involved but funds are desperately needed i mean there are heroes doing great work on the job uh, on the ground but they just don't have the money. And so you have these refugees, you know, fleeing the violence of, of bombs and then ending up with the violence of, of hunger or homelessness or whatever, just because there's not the funds available. And so we hear 
about um, a lot of controversy about refugees coming to the U.S. or Europe, and and those are all legitimate. Um, there are legitimate concerns there. I think there are also legitimate reasons why we should be, you know, bringing more refugees here. But putting that aside, there are far more refugees in the Middle East. Yes. Yes. And organizations caring for them there. There's nothing political. There's nothing controversial about that. These are great people there doing wonderful work and they just need money. And I hear that um, because I think there is a sense where people can say, well, I don't want to be that person that just writes the check. But you're saying, okay, follow where God is calling you you to do, do what God is calling you to do. But the check is really helpful, actually. So let's, uh, Lynn, uh, so I want you, I would like, I'm going to put this on the show notes, but could you, if you, like listeners, if you want to support this little church in Jordan, Lynn, could you tell us where, and I'll, I'll put it on the show notes, but could you tell us where to send a check to? Sure. Um, this, I I can't even name, uh, I don't name this church publicly. Right just right. for security purposes but i've been there numerous times bill's been there we've had other staff members it's really yep. a wonderful work that they're doing uh in an urban area so they're working with syrian refugees um, muslim refugees who are not in camps they're just like squatters kind of yeah. in yeah. buildings and everything and this church is committed to loving and respecting and serving these refugees and it is the most beautiful transformation that is happening there um, in people's lives and in people's hearts. Um, so uh, Bill and I have a nonprofit that's called A2 Ministries. And we any money that is sent to A2 Ministries for this church, we just send 100% right onto the church. There's no overhead or anything. So a check can be written out to A2 Ministries. Um, you'll get a, a tax yep. you know, receipt from that. And and here's the address you can send it to. It's seven seven four. Do you want it now? Yeah, yeah, give it now. And I, I will put this on the show notes. So okay. if you, if if you don't have a pen, if you're driving or whatever, don't worry about it. Go to steveweens.com slash blog. So S D E V E W I E N S slash blog. Um and if you're listening to this a couple months later, you'll have to search for it, but it shouldn't be hard to find. So go ahead, Lynn. So A2 Ministries. A2. A2. It's like X2. Yep. A2 Ministries. Um, 774 Summer, just like Summer, Isle, I-S-L-E, Lane. And that's in Barrington, B-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N, Illinois, 60010. And in the memo, just write Syrian Refugees. Syrian Refugees. Yes. So here, here's the thing, you guys. So I'm just going to talk to the listeners for a second, Lynn. Um, there comes a time when you need to say, I don't know exactly all the nuances of what's going to happen. I don't know what my role is fully. But there comes a time where you need to say, but but I'm going to take one click. I'm, I'm going to take one step towards being a neighbor to someone that I don't know towards peacemaking in the world. So I want to encourage as many of you as possible, um, write a check. And you're going to ask, you know, can we do PayPal, blah, blah, blah. Write the check. Just write the check. Send it uh, to the address in Barrington. um, And um, please support this good work. And there's some, I'll put some links to World Relief, to World Vision. Preemptive Love is another one, right, Lynn? 
that you would say is you vetted and is is really really good um, I would say join me join us in taking a small step toward toward making a pretty big change um, this is a big deal it is the biggest humanitarian crisis we've seen in just a, a very long time and is real so um, and there's people that are doing good work right that's the hope that's the light. There's people that are doing good work in the world right there locally, and they need some help. And, you know, I, I think so often we think that, well, I can only do a little bit, so why bother? But if everybody did a little bit, I mean, it sounds so trite, but it's true. Yes. It's true. If everybody did a little bit, it would make a huge difference. And I've also learned that every time I take the step to do a little bit, it motivates me and I find myself doing a little bit more, you know, but you have to start somewhere. And sometimes it's that first step. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> again, Lynn, I mean, your, uh, your, your yes to maybe I can 2013 honestly did. I mean, it, it ricocheted all around the world. I mean, it really did. Like when I did my thing, then people were emailing me and like, we're going to run, a marathon in Indiana and we're going to do it for trafficking here and there. And I was, I was getting these emails back and people, I think our yeses. And when we have the humble, but courageous thing of just telling a few people about it really do make huge, make a huge impact around the world. Um, and this is so hopeful for me as actually as a, as a pastor, as a pastor of American church, this you know, brings me great hope. I think the other thing is that, when you get involved and you start doing something, then you meet other people who yeah, are doing yeah. things. And then you find hope just in that too. So it kind of snowballs. So it's really important that we all do a little bit and then that we share it with one another and cheer each other on. Oh, big time. Okay, Lynn, I'm going to ask. We have, we are, we, I mean, we could go for two hours. Oh my gosh, we, we've already gone for an hour. So good. Okay, so just a couple more questions. If you don't, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, so if people like there are certain people, Enneagram fives, maybe that are saying, I want to get more information about, about the Middle East. Uh, I want to read a little bit. Uh, that's just who I am. I like to do research. I want to read more about the Congo. Um, what resources would you point them towards books, video series, teachings, podcasts, whatever? Uh, yeah. Um, Well, actually, I just I just um, wrote the forward today to a book on refugees that's coming out in June, um, written uh, put out by World Relief. Actually. Okay. That's going to be a great resource that will be coming out at the beginning of June. Unfortunately, I don't know the name of it right now. Um, also, on my on my website, as you know, there are a couple articles there that give a lot of information about some of the organizations that I'm familiar with. Um, Yep, and Lynn's, Lynn's website is lynnheibels.com, L-Y-N-N-E-H-Y-B-E-L-S.com, right? Is that, was that right? Right, got that. Uh, yeah. Okay, and then you, you, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned Blood Brothers by Ilya Shekhor. He's a Palestinian Christian. Yes, um, I've been quite involved in um, Israel-Palestine, as you mentioned earlier, and kind of from the perspective of what 
what would it mean to follow Jesus into the Holy Land from the peacemaking perspective? And what I've really learned, and I love to see other people learn this, is that there are Israelis and Palestinians committed to peace and Israelis and Palestinians who aren't. Uh, there are Christians, Muslims, and Jews who are committed to peace and others who aren't. But as I've gone over there and as I take people there, my goal is to really stand in solidarity with the peacemakers, whatever you know, religion or, or nationality they are. And what we don't hear about in the U.S. is that there really, really are a lot of good people a piece there yeah. and um, it, it's pretty amazing that we we don't hear those stories but but they're there but uh, a couple of books that are helpful one you mentioned is called Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur and then there's another book by Dale Hanson Burke um, it's uh, The Skeptic's Guide to the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict yeah, yeah. it's a, a very small simple kind of primer on the conflict and that's helpful oh that's good um we we have a group of uh people from our church going with the global immersion project um do you know the global jerry swigert and those guys well, i do i know john and jerry very well oh and cool what they do is wonderful yeah that's that's great so we have maybe four or five people from genesis leaving in about a month um to go with jerry and john and and um to go to Israel, Palestine, and to talk to, make, build relationships, listen, learn. I'm so excited to hear. I wish I was going. I, um, it's not this season for me, but um, well, sometime. Actually, I am focusing more and more on women over there. Yeah, Israeli and Palestinian women. Beautiful. Um, just realizing that um, as everywhere, uh, women need to be around the peace tables and need mm -hmm. to be lifting their voices, and so. Um, and uh, and but I do know what I know what John and Jared are doing, and I love them, and they have great resources. Yeah, it's really good books. So I'm a, I, you, I was just talking. I just skyped with Jared a couple of days ago, and we're old friends. Um, I'm gonna try to have Jared on the podcast too, and and we'll talk about what they're doing with the Global Immersion Project. But I will add that link to the show notes. So you guys, I'm gonna add Lynn's book, uh, "Nice Girls Don't Change Change the World." I'll add uh, the two books that she mentioned by Elias Yukur and Dale Hanson Burke. We're going to put the links to Preemptive Love, World Relief, World Vision, and Questscope, um, yes. which, and then that's another connection. I know Dr. Rhodes, I mean, we've, uh, yeah, just he's an old friend too, so small he is, world. He's one of my heroes. Yeah. He is, he is so brilliant uh, yes. about the refugee situation and, um, he just brings a, a really pure spirit <laughs> and brilliant mind. Yeah. Yeah. I love him. Yeah. I've had, I've had, oh, I've had some great some conversations great. with him where very encouraging ones and very pointed ones. Too. <laughs> he has those eyes, those eyes that just pierce right into your soul and challenge, challenge you. So, okay, Lynn. Uh, oh my goodness. Is there anything you wished I would ask you that I didn't? Oh, you asked me so many more things than I thought you were going to ask. So I think <laughs> well, it just it just it just snowballed. Well, well, we'll we'll have to talk again sometime. I would love that, Lynn. I would love that. Um, <clears throat> okay, everybody, uh, please with this one especially, please go to the show notes, steveweens.com/blog. 
uh, W-I-E-N-S slash blog and get involved. I'm going to put the, the address where you can help this church in Jordan. My hope is that that little P.O. box or mailbox or whatever it is gets absolutely slammed. I hope the postal carrier comes to you and says, what in the world is happening? Uh, I, you have to I, rent a bigger box. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> I, love, I love your spirit. Oh. I, love, I love what you're doing with your church. Thanks. I love what you're doing with your writing and your blog and everything and now this podcast. And Thanks. I'm glad, I'm glad we've gotten to see each other face to face. I know. It was a long time coming. A long time coming. Um, I Yeah, who knows? Maybe we can maybe we can have another conversation soon and I, I i come to chicago from time to time too so who knows where this will go um so lynn what we do every week is we, we we have a little on the podcast the podcast is called this good word and the byline is reclaiming what's holy about our humanity and so kind of the vision is that we would take one word every every week and just dress it out and i don't even know what the word i'm gonna have come up with the word um, for you maybe it's courage maybe it's um I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure what what this word is this week but but then we close with this this mantra and it's uh, we are dust and breath we are limited and limitless we are human and holy and we're in it together Lynn I can't wait to see what happens with you over the next 20 years of your adventures um, it's beautiful it's beautiful well I am glad we are in this together yeah amen Thanks, Lynn. Thanks so much. And thanks, everybody. Grace and peace.